0: Nearly 200 years ago, on a plot of land in Scott County, Kentucky, Native American men and boys, a few whites, and freed and enslaved African Americans came together in an experimental community called Great Crossings. The Choctaw Academy was to become the home to the first federal Indian school in America. At the time, only one other school in the United States was funded by the federal government, West Point. Penn State historian Christina Snyder is the author of Great Crossings, Indians, Settlers, and Slaves in the Age of Jackson. Professor Snyder writes that the Choctaws hoped that establishing a school for their children outside of their homelands would signal that they were civilized and deserved a place in the nation.
1: Over the course of the lifetime of the school, which is 1825 to 1848, uh, over 600 different Uh, Indian boys and men went to this school from 17 different tribal nations, so it was by far the largest and most diverse Indian school in antebellum America. I think it's important today um, because it's a place that really shows us the diversity of antebellum America and brings different kinds of stories together because these were people who had very different ways of life. They, they spoke different languages. They couldn't communicate necessarily, uh, except in English. Um, and, and so even among the native population, this was a really diverse place. But also in Scott County, they met uh, local whites. They went to church, uh, if they so chose. Uh, they went into Georgetown to go shopping. Some of them snuck into taverns you know, and got into trouble. Um, And there were also enslaved people at the academy. They were both free and enslaved African-Americans in great crossings. And um, some of them were actually covertly educated at the school. And so what I think it represents is the coming together um, of really different people in antebellum America and the ways in which they clashed, but also tried to cooperate and, and think about a future together.
0: Snyder said that from the very beginning, the Academy's future was uncertain. The election of the nation's seventh president had a negative effect on the survival of the school.
1: The election of Andrew Jackson really um, changed Indian policy significantly um, to what we call removal policy. and Most Americans probably um, know the Cherokee Trail of Tears and they associate that with the Cherokee Nation. Um, But that was actually a blanket policy that applied to all Native peoples of the East. So, all told, it forcibly removed about 100,000 Native Americans from their homelands to Indian Territory, which was west of the Mississippi. Um, And so, in that kind of new context, it became harder and harder to see how Choctaw Academy was going to fit into the national fabric. You know, lots of White policy makers asked, well, what's the point of educating Native people if um, they're going to be forcibly removed anyway? Um, So you go from kind of a policy of assimilation to separation. And Native peoples became frustrated as well because they felt that the quality of education they received declined over time because of the removal policy. and because of that, and also because Native people are footing the bill for this, they're actually paying about 90% of the money um, that maintained the academy, they ultimately decided um, to use that power of the purse, remove the money, and establish their own school systems in Indian Territory, um, which is what's now Oklahoma. So essentially what they do is they take some of the lessons they learned at Choctaw Academy, some of the positive things, but also many of the critiques that they had, and they use them to forge uh, new public school systems in their own nations.
0: Five years ago, Georgetown ophthalmologist Dr. William Chip Richardson was looking for some land in Scott County. The land he purchased included the remnants of the original Choctaw Academy, built in 1825, by Kentucky landowner and a vice President of the United States, Richard Mentor Johnson,
2: when I purchased it the uh, the apical roof beam, um, which was tied into the chimney on one end and then resting on a wall on the other, um, had a pretty tremendous sag in it. Um, the building had somewhere probably in the mid 1900s had an asphalt shingle you know placed on it to try to save it from you know water uh, penetration and um, about three months after I closed the deal on the, on the farmland, um, I was graciously rewarded with that apical beam collapsing. Uh, and like a wishbone, you know, it, uh, it either was going to push out on the front wall or the roof rafters are going to push out on the Southern wall. Uh, and we ended up losing a, a pretty large part of the Southern wall. And at that point I realized, you know, oh my gosh, you know, this, this needs to be saved. And, um, I had a lot of connections within my practice, people to, to talk to, people with the uh, Heritage Council and whatnot, and they all were great and gave me great advice. But, you know, as as you know, water penetration is like the enemy for any any structure of any kind. And, and that became my first priority, was to try to find a way to stabilize the structure. I mean, early on, you know, it's mostly stone and it's probably not, you know, a, a, a panic, but I knew that ultimately we needed to get a roof over it in pretty short, in a pretty short time. The um, the next steps that I took after uh, we kind of reached a, a point where the Heritage Council uh, could not formulate a preservation easement um, was to try to find out who would make good natural collaborators. And um, I tried, you know, social funding, you know, group funding, like what can we do with GoFundMe? And my GoFundMe page at the time, you know, earned about, you know, maybe $1,000 or $2,000. And I thought, okay, this isn't going to get me where I need to go for, a, for a, a pole barn structure to put over the whole thing. And um, so I started reaching out to the Choctaw Nation, you know, first of all, with a phone call and then, then some emails. Was
0: it difficult uh, learning who to call and, and what number to reach them? Uh, <laughs> well, how a, did that happen? A,
2: so that's a great question. So they have a great website, uh, the, the Choctaw Foundation, C-H-A-H-T-A Foundation, uh, which, is, which is their uh, charitable arm, um, has a great website. And on there are a list of the people, including their executive director. Uh, and I reached out to him directly and uh, found him to be a very willing partner um, because it is well taught within the nation that, that the Choctaw Academy was a very integral part of um, not only Choctaw um, survival as a nation, but in terms of uh, them getting the, the necessary Western education to become competitive uh, as European expansion was taking place.
0: Today, a number of partners are coming together to restore the Choctaw Academy. The Georgetown-Scott County Museum, Kentucky Humanities, filmmaker Michael Breeding, and RCI, an International Construction Trade Association with 3,600 members, has adopted the project and will encourage its members to donate money, materials, and expertise during the restoration.
2: Richardson has high hopes for the future of the land and the school. I would say that if you the the resounding opinion for most preservationists is wouldn't it be cool to kind of put the school back together and at least, you know, build the foundations of the buildings that are gone so people could see where they were, you know, kind of reference the old photographs that we have and just kind of stand there. Because when you stand on that farm and you kind of look over the hillside and you imagine, you know, the thousands of acres that the Johnsons owned at the time, you can still imagine that today. Um, you know, it's not encumbered by a lot of modern utilities and whatnot. I mean, you can stand on that farm and really be taken back in time. And when you open the door to the Choctaw Academy and you kind of look at the, at the first floor and you go into the basement where they did a lot of their cooking on a Franklin stove, um, I mean, it's a real time warp. And I would, I would say that there's a lot of educational opportunity there, um, things that look at uh, to, to kind of reflect upon diversity and the way cultures were colliding in the early 1800s how the Indian Removal Act, you know, had, had a negative impact on the Native Americans, um, you know, assimilation, you know, versus removal. Um, there's a lot of teachings there. And most importantly, I mean, it doesn't end with the Native Americans. Uh, as many don't know, R.M. Johnson was de facto married to an African-American. Uh, it was actually his father's slave that was, that was left to him when his father passed. And Julia Chin, as a, quote-unquote, second lady, um, as an African American essentially running a plantation. There's so much to learn there about how African Americans were embraced or shunned, you know, during the period of 1820 when, when I think a lot of Kentuckians and European immigrants were still trying to figure out how the African Americans fit into the big pictures in terms of race relations. Um, the Julia Chin story um, is, is a whole, you know, story by itself and her slave quarters is still partially standing there on the farm, on the parcel just to the north of, of the Choctaw Academy Dormitory, which I own. And uh, it'd be nice to see it all come together again. So when I'm old and gray, what I would like to see is, honestly, the whole thing become a historic landmark. If if that's if that's also what the Native American tribes wish for this as well, uh, I really think they should be in the driver's seat in terms of helping me make decisions for the future of the place. But um, it would be nice to see it as a historic landmark. It would nice nice to, to be to see those foundations of the original school buildings and maybe even build the classroom back. I think the foundation is still there. Uh, and look over that hill and, and literally see the Choctaw Academy, you know, at least as, as much as we can afford to have it in its original glory um, and have people come and, and enjoy it and, and learn those things that I mentioned before. Um, that would be a great place for me. I mean, there's, there's enough farmland there. It's not like those folks are going to be, intru- you know, intrusive. I think it's something that, that we're obligated to share.
0: Even though the Academy's fate was sealed by the historical events of the late 1840s, author and historian Christina Snyder found a compelling story replete with diverse and compelling characters.
1: And it's not a story um, that you see a lot in antebellum history. That is, we don't often see really rich histories that do involve white black and native americans all at the same time coexisting in the same space and i think the thing that surprised me the most when i started researching was the richness of the records you know oftentimes especially when you look at native american or african-american history before the civil war it's incredibly difficult to get good records you know And, and people can often emerge as kind of flat or stereotypical because you don't have that richness of information And that's not the case here because we have so many Native people and some African Americans who wrote a lot and whose letters survived and who come off as funny or, you know, sad or sarcastic even, that they're extremely rich um, voices in that historical record. So that's really what surprised me the most. and And that's still what I love about the book. And I think that's what people respond to.
0: For Kentucky Humanities and Eastern Standard, I'm Bill Goodman.